Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode of No Place Like Home is being brought to you by the Sierra Club, which encourages you to get out there and explore, enjoy, and protect the planet. Join our 3 million members and supporters working to power this nation with 100% clean energy at sierraclub.org. And now on to this episode of No Place Like Home. Hi, y'all. Welcome back to No Place Like Home, a show that gets to the heart of climate change. I'm Anna Jane Joyner, a climate activist living on the Gulf Coast of Alabama. And I'm Marianne Hitt, a climate activist and director of Sierra Club's Beyond Coal campaign living in the West Virginia Hills. This season of No Place Like Home, we've been diving deep into all the climate feels, the emotional, psychological, and even spiritual landscape of climate change. Anna Jane and I talk about faith and spirituality a lot, about the role it plays in our personal lives and how it informs our climate activism. And so we are really excited to dedicate this episode to exactly that, faith, spirituality, and the complicated way that it has been interwoven with our climate activism and with climate history. And we're really excited to bring y'all a conversation with Corinna Gore, Al Gore's daughter, who has emerged as a leading spiritual thinker and leader on climate change. But first, Anna Jane and I have some catching up to do. We just got back from New York City. I feel like we've been hanging out so much IRL these days, and it's I'm just absolutely love it so much. Girl time is the best. Absolutely. So much fun. Yeah. So how are you doing now that you're back in non-New York City life? Well, you know, we I have to drop a little teaser here for our listeners that we were recording our final episode of the season of All the Climate Feels with a very cool special guest. And so we can't wait to share that with you in a few weeks. But since then, I have to tell you that I have been trying something new, which is tied to this episode, which is is kind of a morning meditation yoga reflection time that I have actually stuck with now for almost two weeks, thanks to um, some local friends uh, supporting that. And I feel much better. So I'm so excited we're talking about spirituality as part of all this work because I'm kind of in a zone right now where I'm feeling the benefits of actually having some kind of intentional practice around that, which has been frankly hard for me to do because I'm not always the most disciplined person in the world. (laughs) Totally feel that. And I'm so excited um, to be jumping into this. You know, like faith has been such a big part of my journey for better or worse and adopting practices that help nourish and sustain me is something that's become critical to my life. And yeah, I just I'm really excited about this episode and having this conversation with you and hearing from Corinna Gore. But first, I just wanted to highlight since, you know, this work is hard and stressful most of the time, I think it's really important to celebrate our wins. And we had a big win recently. Can you tell us all about the coal ash one in North Carolina? You know, Anna Jane, that every coal plant in North Carolina has on the site uh, is storing its coal ash, which is this stuff that's left over after you burn coal. It's this like flowery substance and it is full of all of the 
toxic heavy metals that didn't go out of the smokestack into the air. So as we have increased and improved our pollution technologies on the smokestacks, it's not as if that stuff just doesn't go anywhere. It just ends up kind of at the other end of the process. It ends up in this coal ash. And so we have things like mercury, lead, arsenic that are very dangerous to human health in even higher concentrations in coal ash. And until recently, there were no federal standards whatsoever for how it was disposed of. So they were literally dumping it into holes in the ground beside power plants, which were beside rivers and lakes. And Duke Energy in North Carolina had problems with this pollution leaking into the streams and rivers and lakes and drinking water at all of their coal plants. And the state of North Carolina, with a new governor, Democrat, Roy Cooper, just ordered them to clean up all the coal ash ponds in North Carolina and move that coal ash to lined landfills that are monitored. So it is many years in the making and it is a very big deal. Oh, I cried when I heard this news. A couple of years ago, I was, you know, worked on this fight. I actually worked, speaking of faith, um, I worked with a bunch of faith leaders and pastors and even went to the Duke Energy shareholders meeting and brought them a faith perspective on why they should clean up this disgusting, nasty poisonous pollution. And so I just remember when we first started that fight, I think it was like six or seven years ago, it felt so impossible and overwhelming, even though I've been gone the past couple of years, just to to wake up and get the news that we actually won it was one of the most profound and exciting moments of my life. And I'm just so grateful to you and to Beyond Coal and to the you know Waterkeeper Alliance, all the pastors I worked with and everyone who who really you know poured a lot of work and faith into making this happen. So ah, what a good, what a good week. <laughs> You know, it's one more reminder of the many reasons to move past fossil fuels and also of people power. It's a reminder of the incredible power that we have when we come together and we never give up, which is one of our themes of our friendship and of this show. Um, And I know a lot of folks are out there feeling very inspired around the Green New Deal, which I just thought was worth mentioning because there's so much energy and excitement around it. And also because it has kind of come crashing into your life in maybe some less than fun ways. <laughs> so with your dad <laughs> saying some problematic things about it. So I just wanted to see, you know, how you're doing because, you know, I know uh, that you are in the middle of some some very challenging dynamics there. So, and I'm sure you're, and I'm sure there are a lot of listeners who are too, who have some relative who's been, you know, saying she wants us to stop flying and make it illegal to eat hamburgers and having to figure out how to talk to that relative across the, the kitchen table. Yeah, it's fascinating. It's just such a t- Testament to the power of like Fox News and the right wing blogosphere, because you can just tell by my dad railing on Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and also the Green New Deal, that there's all this like manipulation and fake news floating around trying to incite uh, people like my father, the right wing. Uh, But of course, that means that he's been talking about climate change a lot more recently, which You know, especially back in the day, it used to get to me on like a very emotional level because it's like of all the issues in the world, can you just use your like giant platform of hundreds of thousands of people not to attack the issue that I've devoted my life to? (laughs) Can you just leave that one alone? I've gotten to where I realize that even though it's fairly insensitive, I don't think it's a personal attack on me and my work. But, it, you know, it's taken a lot to work through all that. And it is heavy. You know, it just... It's hard to have a very powerful father who's using his platform to essentially diminish and demean climate change, which is the thing that I've devoted my life to. And it also just strikes me as so fascinating because Rihanna Gunn-Wright, who's the kind of like 
primary architect of the Green New Deal, is a very devoted Christian. And a lot of the of her, you know, the commitment to justice and equality and taking care of people in this transition, you know, in, in some ways is rooted in values that come from, you know, Jesus's teachings to love our neighbors and care for the least of these. And so it's sad to me more than anything else that powerful conservative Christians are attacking this thing that actually, when you look at it, has a lot of is rooted in a lot of Christian values. Well, that is a great kickoff, I think, to this conversation we're going to have with Coretta Gore. She's at the Union Theological Seminary in New York. She's the director of the Center for Earth Ethics. And we're going to dive into a lot of this tension around faith and climate change and also all the opportunity with her. So I can't wait to do that. But first, let's hear from one of our listeners about how they are coping in the era of climate change. Hi, my name's Morgan and I live in West Virginia. A few things that are keeping me sane in the face of climate change are my community, my kids, and my faith. Within my community, I am reminded day after day that I am not alone in this fight. With my kids, I get to wake up each day and look into their eyes and see that even at a young age, they innocently know the difference between right and wrong. Within my faith, I am reminded of my courage. As I move from being an activist to an organizer to a leader, I am able to share that faith with others and with myself. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. So Anna Jane, I'm so excited to share this conversation with you. I was up in New York and I sat down with Corinna Gore, who is the director of the Center for Earth Ethics at Union Theological Seminary. She's also the daughter of Al Gore, and she shares a lot of great thoughts about the role faith has played in her climate journey and vice versa. And you were mentioning earlier your dad, and she obviously has a very important and powerful dad, Al Gore. And when you were talking about your dad, it occurred to me that maybe our listeners don't know who your dad is. And and so maybe you want to take a couple steps back and tell us about how he is and how faith and climate change have been kind of in a complicated place in your life for your whole life. Yeah, literally. Um, faith has been an animating and intense part of my life since even before I was born. My dad is a pastor and a writer. He's pretty well known within certain circles within Christianity. He's about as conservative as they possibly get. You know, he's on Trump's task force. He's very involved in, in those kind of far right wing politics. Well, I, I think your experience to the conversation we're going to have here because, you know, again, Karenna, she actually uh, didn't start from the environment. Obviously, her dad, Al Gore, brought climate into the mainstream conversation with an inconvenient truth, but he is also 
a person of faith and raised her in the Baptist church. She doesn't identify as a Baptist anymore, but she is a theologian and has devoted her studies and her work to the environment as the head of the Center for Earth Ethics at Union Theological Seminary. But she kind of started with spirituality and then came back around to the environment through her spirituality. One of the crystallizing moments for her was a big conference that Union Theological Seminary was convening for religious leaders around a meeting at the United Nations. Secretary General Ban Ki-moon called the Climate Summit. And in September 2014, there was the People's Climate March, there was the Climate Summit, and so we had the opportunity to organize a conference here called Religions for the Earth. We had almost 300 religious and spiritual leaders from around the world come, and the goal was to reframe climate change as a moral issue and galvanize faith-based activism on it. And it was in the process of planning that conference that I really became immersed and excited about this work. And that was the work and the moment that really opened Corinna's focus to world religions and all their teachings on the environment and on climate change. So that was really the single most compelling thing about planning this conference, because in the traditional interfaith dialogue world, um, Judaism, Islam, Christianity, Buddhism, and Hinduism, and of course within that there are complexities and there are others, but that, that actually the fact that indigenous traditions didn't conventionally have a voice in that was is so interesting to unpack because it has to do with colonization and and our very notion of what religion is has to do with a colonial idea and then to look back at the history of um of how that happened the, the basically just to keep it short you know the marriage of christianity and empire um in this country um and looking back at that and then hearing from indigenous traditions for whom nature has always had its own subjective subjecthood and volition and agency and for which also place is important, that the sacred can be located in the natural world in a way that being in relationship to it is part of your experience of, of being a, a spiritual human being. So, you know, kind of a surprising way, looking at this broad scope of faith practices, including indigenous faith practices and worldviews, actually helped her see, you know, some of those problematic and difficult underpinnings of Christianity that you mentioned, Anna Jane, that you really wrestled with as you were wrestling with the faith in which you were raised. Yeah, I think that there's this uh, kind of colonialized, empire-centric version of Christianity that's pretty divorced from Jesus's teachings that has kind of places humans over nature or even you can, you know, men over women. Like there's a lot, you can trace a lot of these really toxic parts of our culture and and kind of culture of oppression to this, this dark interpretation of Christianity. And of course, a foundational aspect of colonialism positions white Christianity as having dominion over other humans. And by translation, you know, they're sacred their sacred spaces. Often, you know, when I do that analysis of kind of the marriage of Christianity and empire and how the institutions of Christianity um, in abusive ways towards native people uh, tried to deny those bonds that they had with their places and and to make it illegal to do ceremonies um, that honored a, maybe a particular river or um, e- even even ceremonies like sweat lodge ceremonies or the idea that that um, uh, that, that that was an abusive uh, 
system and it denied a whole way of believing and even the idea of ownership of land. I mean, that's a deep question as to, you know, whether or not we are viewing viewing nature as property seems obvious to, to us having grown up um, in, in the belief system that we have. But of course, the idea of property that somebody can buy a mountain and then blow it up, as you know well in West Virginia, um, is, is, is actually, it's, it's not a neutral religious idea. It's, it's actually very much dependent on the idea that there isn't anything sacred there that needs to be saved for future generations or enjoyed by the rest of the community of life. So I, I have a critique of the role that Christianity has played. Rena also had some really interesting things to say about the connection that was forged between Christianity and capitalism in the mid-20th century, and it may be something that we all take for granted now, but there is actually a pretty fascinating history behind that. So this is about how in the 1950s in particular, there was a very big effort to equate Christianity and capitalism. And you can see that is when One Nation Under God um, went, uh, in God we trust went on the money, One Nation Under God went into the Pledge of Allegiance. There was a very sustained effort by PR people to make it clear that Christianity and capitalism were the same, aided by the fact that, of course, our um, so-called enemies, you know, were the, was this godless Soviet Union. So those things fell into place. But that, um, that equation of Christianity and capitalism, and the conversation around capitalism is much more uh, complex, but this version of capitalism in which there there can be no regulation or restraint on the objectification and extraction from the natural world regardless of the damage and the consequences is very much i think baked into this tight this brand of christianity because also it still does rely on that other world thing the the idea that this is all kind of despicable here and that we're just kind of getting through it and the important thing is that if god if if mankind is in the image of god um then we demonstrate that constantly by you know in some people's minds pillaging and and making it into something else oh i have so many feels about this because <laughs> i just think it's so antithetical to my understanding of god and spirit yeah, I was just listening to our friend Rob Bell this morning talking about the Lord's Prayer and just kind of we think of our Father who art in heaven as being like this far away place that we need to get to. And that's like the goal of this life is to get to the next life. But actually, you know, what that passage is talking about is this idea of heaven being a place of possibility where we can kind of realize a better version of ourselves and of our world of you know bringing more life and beauty and and equality and justice into this world here and i just feel like that whole concept of this life isn't valuable that this is just kind of a, a waiting space or waiting room for for the afterlife is tragic and and so disrespectful to the gift of life that we've been given, whether or not you believe that God gave us that life or some miracle of the universe or science or however you want to put it. It's just this is a magical place. And the idea that we can justify destroying it or hurting it with Christianity, it makes me livid. Well, and, you know, one of the interesting things in the, the conversation that we had is it, that is one interpretation of Christianity or one view on it. Obviously, that makes it complicit in colonialism and turning the air and the water into a commodity and kind of, you know, being at the root cause of the problem. But 
There's also this other interpretation of these stories, which is all about social justice. If you look at people like Martin Luther King Jr., who are very much, you know, inspired by Jesus's example and teachings. There's another way of interpreting essentially everything being part of a creation that connects all of us with one another and that is the sacred and, you know, heaven is sort of under our feet. We are more than just a lot of biological organisms bumping into each other on this blue and green ball, but we actually have a, a soulful spiritual connection and responsibility to one another. So, you know, there's this whole other way that you can read and interpret these stories that's very sustaining and life-giving, as you know so well. And Karenna introduced me to one facet of that, um, and that's really the part of all this work that she is most interested in pursuing. But she introduced me to this this term I hadn't heard before called watershed discipleship, which I just thought was so cool and fascinating. Ooh, tell me more. Well, it's basically the idea of, you know, taking the idea of being a disciple, you know, like a follower or a devotee, and to becoming a f- disciple of your local watershed or your river or your stretch of the coastline, the waterway that is closest to you. There's a movement for watershed discipleship, for for people to be engaged as church communities and actually relating to the land in that way. I think also going to see front lines of, of eco justice where you can look and see, okay, well, where are people suffering from this extractive economy right now? Not just us diversing, div- divesting, but also can we go to this community and, and help serve them and be in solidarity with them? Because we're in a place now where you know, the not in my backyard NIMBY thing, which um, which was, as I understand it, also a kind of invention of corporate propaganda to get people to, to be embarrassed about defending their own backyard from a toxic situation, is actually, um, it can be a very positive force as long as we're in solidarity with each other in everyone's backyard. So I think that um, that the church community should speak up in terms of the moral voice about the systems and also on a more local level, root people in place in a way that can get us back in integrity with how we're relating to each other and the natural world. Oh, I love that. I mean, I do think the like wonderful part of of Christianity or church communities and also other faith communities as well is that they are like these centers of where places where people gather and connect with each other um, in real life communities and, and places. And we've lost a lot of that, you, you know, in our culture these days. Like we don't have uh, civic halls or at least we don't participate in them as much as we used to. And yet churches can still function as this gathering space where ideas are exchanged and, and either where, you know, I worked with tons of churches in Asheville when I was working in Western North Carolina where there was community gardening. They were doing river cleanups on the French Broad River. They were helping to host events where they talked about the moral reasons we should be at, you know, acting on climate change and, and water pollution and um, coal ash you know, was a big problem in our local community. And so I do think that while Christianity in particular has played a, a very dark role in some ways in cl- colonization and, and kind of the oppression of both lands and people, there is an opportunity now for kind of redemption in how we protect our local spaces and raise our voices to to address these larger systems. And I have wonderful experiences with church leaders and lay people and communities and, and using their power to help us 
protect our world and heal our world. Well, and I have to give a shout out to my spiritual home, which is Shepherdstown Presbyterian Church, which uh, calls itself a school of love and a house of prayer and is all about trying to live out these teachings around social justice and caring for creation here in this world rather than trying to escape to another one. You know, I've also found it just for me personally to have spiritual community that I am part of on a regular basis to be something that has really helped me cope with the stress of climate change and also the, the stress of working on climate change every day. And so I was curious about that with Karenna as well, again, giving this complicated relationship a lot of us have with Christianity and with faith about kind of where she finds solace and strength. And she talked about meditation and religious texts from a broad range of faiths, but she also acknowledged that the burden that we're carrying is real, even if we all you know, don't always want to talk about it. Our culture and society right now, um, including climate change, but for other reasons too, um, is challenging um, for people emotionally, psychologically. Um, and I know there are many different paths to have a practice to help to center yourself in the middle of it, but I I, I hope people find their own path. I, I, I would find it very difficult to live through this without that kind of daily practice because um, if you're a sentient being, um, and especially if you are particularly sensitive to signs of danger, I mean, you know, a lot of people, sometimes people say women uh, are especially, you know, have been prone to depression and anxiety in these years. And, and, um, and I, you know, I, I think men are important too and have their own uh, sort of ability and antenna to sense that. But I definitely think when you are in a position where you're wanting to nurture and bring up children and these signs of danger are everywhere and they're confusing and we're in an information revolution and also the complicity that we all have, this is a big spiritual problem, I think, because we are participating in these systems. Hmm. Yeah. You know, I think originally I came to interlacing faith and, and climate activism more from like a strategic point of view, like, oh, we need to engage and mobilize Christians and uh, and people of faith to fight this issue. So let's do it. And now it's still, you know, I still think it's really important to engage a variety of diverse communities, but it has also become a deeply personal and meaningful part of my life, both returning to elements of the Christian, you know, especially Jesus's teachings around injustice and fighting oppression, but even just like the Easter story. Like I remember last year, you know, because the past couple of years I haven't hidden this from from your listeners have been really, really hard. And I had always kind of looked at Easter as a sort of frou-frou holiday where you wore like bright colors and ate chocolate. And even as a kid, it seemed kind of ridiculous to me. But this past year, I did go to church. I go to a really sweet church called um, St. Christopher's Episcopal. And just this story around facing darkness and death and overwhelming odds and finding resurrection and hope and courage within that was, I mean, I I cried. Like, it took on this whole new meaning for me as a climate activist and just as a human facing all of these really, this really intense moment in our lives and in our world where we are facing a lot of darkness and we have to find courage and hope and light and beauty within that. 
But I think it's also interesting, too, that she talks about, like, I don't think there's any right or wrong way to do this, you know? Like, I I actually have found a great deal of centeredness in, in Buddhist teachings. You know, mindfulness meditation has been a big part of my practice that just helps center me on a daily basis and, and really meditating on non-attachment and that really all I can do is show up and do it in a good way, as our, our friend Lenny likes to say. But beyond that, like, I can't... I can't kill myself worrying about, you know, what's going to happen. I just have to be present and, and and do do my best and also just take, you know, as many moments as possible to really savor this, this beautiful experience and gift of life um, that we are in the moment of, despite all of these larger, scary things and, and all of the suffering out there. Well, and I think faith, hope, and love, that's sort of a core Christian teaching that you know, again, as we're dealing with both the sustaining and the problematic elements of all this, that fundamentally that's what kind of keeps me going is returning to that. The faith and the and the hope that it is possible for something beautiful to come out of dark times, as you mentioned, you know, that spring is here, you know, it is that season when, when seemingly life will never return. Um, it does, and it is all the more sweeter because of it. And uh, aligning yourself with the possibility that that can happen is necessary, I think, at least for me as an activist, to, to know that, that good things can come out of these dark times. And uh, as she mentioned, um, it's confusing because we all know we're also complicit in the systems in the first place and participating in, the, in them at some level. So as we find that strength for ourselves, then I think it gets, you know, ever more confusing and frustrating because you have the evangelical church, you have the sort of politis, politicizing of this in a way that then feels like it is preventing, you know, it's preventing that resurrection. It's preventing those good things from coming that so many of us are working so hard for. And I just, you know, I know Corinna had some thoughts on that, but Anna Jane, just what is it about the evangelical church that has taken this on as a partisan issue or as the cause of liberal elites? And um, where do we go from here? I mean, I think it's deception, you know, it's like, I don't like the whole like Satan, evil antichrist thing, but I think there's something to the fact that huge swaths of the American church are are being deceived by, you know, by oil companies and power, essentially, and greed. It absolutely breaks my heart that my dad is caught up in all of that because I know on a personal level he's a good person who is trying to do good for the world. And I would probably be questioning that myself, except for I you know, have a lot of a great scientists behind me and have a lot of amazing people like you and, and also a lot of pastors and priests and, and spiritual leaders who are fighting the fight to heal our worlds. But yeah, it's it's really I don't have any answers. I think it's tragic that that Christianity has gotten caught up in that and that Christian leaders like my father have gotten caught up in that. But I, I do think it just comes down to all of, you know, kind of all of the gross things in the world, power, greed, fear, fear of losing control, fear of, fear of losing power. But yeah, I'd love to hear what Corinna has to say about it. Well, and, you know, I talked with her about how people are sometimes afraid of being political, people of faith are, or of bringing their faith into their, their political work or their advocacy work. But we have to understand what does political mean? If you're talking about one party is better than the other party, okay, yeah, let's stay away from that. But if we're talking about issues of power and the ways that laws and policies are affecting 
most vulnerable people, all of life, our own integrity, that is actually a mandate to discuss. So I would say, you know, it's so common for us and people who see this in their personal lives or their families or communities where there's an uncomfortable issue to bring up because someone will get upset or mad. But we've all seen, we've learned these historical lessons over time when good people do nothing and stand by and are silent, that's when the injustice continues. So I would just say, to try to meditate on or or discern how to approach something that seems political, but it really isn't about party politics, and take it out of that and talk about it more, present it more. You can use sacred texts and teachings. It's all in there in order to get folks to pay attention to it in a different way. Apply that to the climate crisis right now, because it's 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 such an opportunity for us to be thinking on a different level than we are now. And I think that is a great note to end on because Anna Jane, I know you and I both have felt since we became friends and started this podcast journey a few years ago that the moral call for acting on climate and the the moral imperative that we have and, and the common humanity that that taps into um, has been a big missing piece of this climate conversation. And, you know, we have talked a lot about Christianity and evangelical Christianity here, but, you know, all forms of faith, Muslim, Hindu, Buddhism, Jewish, Christian, indigenous, all of these ways of knowing, all these ways of spirituality, I think tapping into those personally, I think it's essential to find the strength and the courage to tackle this problem and and look at it straight ahead in an unflinching way. And also remember that we're all each other's brothers and sisters, or, and including the, the plants and the animals, and that we're all interconnected and dependent on each other. And it's sort of that moral and ethical and spiritual interdependence, I think, that is at the heart of so many of these teachings that I think is both a source of healing for this issue and is a path forward when sometimes it, it seems really hard. Yeah, absolutely. And I just wanted to to leave our listeners with this one quote that I um, have been meditating on this morning. Um, and it's by Joanna Macy, who's an incredible writer about kind of this connection between spirit and climate change and um, healing our world. She's a, a Buddhist writer and thinker. But um, this quote struck me this morning. She said, this may be the last gasp of life on earth. And what a great last gasp if we realize that we have fallen in love with each other. If you are really in the moment of experiencing our reality, you don't say, oh, I won't experience this because it's not going to last forever. We've got this moment. Oh, Anna Jane, you know, and you know, in this moment, it's spring in Appalachia, the red buds and the daffodils are blooming. Everything is bursting out in neon green. And this is a beautiful world that we are taking care of together. So thank you for that beautiful quote and for this wonderful conversation. Yeah, I'm so grateful to be alive here with you and all of our listeners. And I mean, it's easy to get caught up in the darkness and the scariness of all this, but damn, there's so much goodness and beauty in this world. And I think part of our responsibility as climate activists is to chase that and to bring it out to others and to remind remind the world what we're fighting for do this work from a place of love and faith and hope and do it in a good way (laughs) yay thank you anna jane oh i love you marianne
All right. That does it for today. Anna Jane and I want to say thank you all so much for listening and for taking this journey with us through all the climate feels. Thank you so much, the great band River Wireless for our theme music. And thank you to our wonderful sponsor, the Sierra Club. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts, and we'll be posting all the episodes and updates about upcoming episodes on our Twitter page, at NPLH Podcast. So be sure to follow us there. And as always, please subscribe and leave reviews for us on Apple Podcasts. That is how other people find the show. And we have been reading your all's reviews. They are they keep us going, honestly. They they are one of the main reasons that we keep putting these episodes out for you. So thank you for those. Uh, they sustain us and they also help more people find the show. And don't forget that we are now on Instagram. You can find us at No Place Like Home Podcast. We also would love to hear from you if you want to contribute a clip about how you're staying sane and coping with the age of climate change. So you can uh, contact us again on Twitter at NPLH podcast with that contribution or any other questions or comments or suggestions or ideas. Tweet at us. And remember, there's no place like home.